Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I'm your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we are going to continue our conversation with David Sussler in our second installment of our recurring series from inside the general counsel's office. David is an attorney whose current role is as associate general counsel at National Material LP. David has a valuable and insightful perspective on what it means to take on this role as an in-house attorney who works both with internal clients within his organization, as well as with outside counsel and vendors who are service providers to him and his company, as well as working with leaders within his organization and the C-suite. During his 31-year career, David has worked both as outside counsel in a law firm as well as in-house for various companies, and he has an interesting and valuable perspective on what it means to be an effective general counsel and in-house practitioner. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us again. It is a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me back. So, David, in our last episode, you walked us through some highlights of your professional career as well as your in-house journey, which included two stints as a general counsel, and then your current position where you are associate general counsel of National Material. You also shared some insights on things that you have found the most rewarding and challenging about your various roles. Why don't you tell us about another critical part of your various roles in-house, which really um, one of the critical sets of relationships you can have separate and apart from your internal clients are the relationships you have with the owners and the C-suite. Why don't you tell us about those relationships? At my first company, which, which was a very small company, I worked and reported directly to the owner of the company. And it, it was built on, on a personal relationship that formed during the interview process. So he gave me the freedom to retrain myself and he helped teach me about the business world and helped me learn to think more like a business person, especially in writing and communicating to speak like business people. At my new company, my current company, which is not new anymore, I've been there 12 and a half years now, I am, as we said, I'm associate general counsel, so I'm number two of two in a two-person law department. <laughs> and I work for headquarters of what's essentially a holding company. And as I mentioned in our previous session, we have about 40 different operating business units. So I have a relationship with the corporate C-suite as well as the senior management of all of our different business operating units. And I think one of the reasons I enjoy it so much is I take the time to cultivate not only a strong working relationship, but I work as hard to try to build some semblance of a personal relationship and get to know each of these people on a personal basis, which I think is very important for not only doing a good job as a lawyer, but also for enjoying your job. What do you see as the most challenging aspects of your interactions with owners in the C-suite? A lot of that is probably just time-driven when you have really hot issues that are very time-sensitive, that don't have easy answers, and you've got, you've got the people with P&L responsibility looking at you to give them an answer with 
you know, a few hours or a couple of days lead time maybe for something that, you know, may be a brand new area of the law. That's very challenging. What about issues regarding like the overall health of the company? How often do you get involved or business lines or other major inflection points of a particular organization? And I'm again, not really focusing solely on your current position. I'm looking at you know, the, the last 20 years primarily of your in-house career? I've been involved to varying degrees from right up close to a little bit more distance throughout my career. You know, again, at the first company, as it was slowly going out of business, the owner and I spent a lot of time talking about how do we plan for this? Who, you know, do we need to do mass layoffs, small layoffs? Who, who should go in what order? Uh, the second company, we had two different lines of business, and I knew that when I came on, I knew we were going to put one of the companies into bankruptcy in six or eight months, and we ended up having to do that two weeks after I started. And the owner and I were very closely involved in discussing those decisions and, and why we made it. Now, we have a much larger decision-making team, but... I do get involved in some very critical business decisions. Uh, Again, you know, since I've already talked about the tariffs, the tariffs have been a very interesting issue over the last year and a half. And I have been intimately involved in a number of discussions with all of the C-suite and the business unit and, and the owner of the company on various matters. So let's switch gears a little bit, or maybe not so much, depending on what your answer is to the following question. When you look back at your uh, tenure as a GC of two companies and your current position, what did you find keeping you up at night? You know, people love to ask me that question, and it's, and it's interesting. I had asked my GC that question a number of years ago, and his answer, which I kind of adopted, is, well, nothing because I have a clear conscience. But then again, you know, there's different things that keep you up <laughs> at night. <laughs> These days, I think like many GCs, uh, cybersecurity related issues are really concerning. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Are there any other subject areas beyond just cybersecurity, health of your network, all those related IT issues? Are there any other areas that give you concern? Not in a broad sense, you know, in, uh, if you've got an M&A, if you're in an M&A, you know, I may have some sleepless nights as we're getting towards the close, but that's just because of the stress of the deal, not for more esoteric issues and concerns like there are in cybersecurity. Uh, We had a deal a few years ago where my GC is a very experienced M&A lawyer, and I've really only been doing M&A for a few years. So I joked after our last after our last purchase late last year, I said to my GC, I think I can now confidently say that my skill set in MA is equivalent to a second year associate. Very funny. <laughs> um, but we had a we had a deal a couple of years ago that there had always been a question whether or not we, we, it was an asset purchase deal. And I kept trying to find out does the seller own any vehicles? Well, I found out two days before the deal, they kept saying maybe one. Well, they actually had a lease for 17 vehicles and we weren't going to take it. And I almost had to kill the deal over that. And that was really nerve wracking for me 
you know, again, being a 30-year lawyer, but really a junior associate in the M&A context and realizing a fact that may throw a monkey wrench into the entire deal. We worked it out and the seller actually ended up just swallowing the leases themselves so we could still close. But that that led to a couple of sleepless nights when I thought I was going to be responsible for killing a deal. Over 17 cars. Uh, trailers. Well, it's an interesting because we had we had dealt with that leasing company before and we knew that it was not a good road to go down. Well, I'm glad that things worked out on that deal. And no, I, I think that there are a lot of GCs that agree with you. For example, cybersecurity, you know, a couple of years ago, definitely front and center with a lot of GCs. And I think it's only become more of an issue as time goes on because as there are different cyber events that happen both in the U.S. as well as outside of the U.S. and people see what the potential consequences are if you're not properly prepared, it could be catastrophic to an organization. So David, let's switch gears for just a couple of minutes and talk about your relationships with outside counsel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We did touch upon this at least um, to a certain extent in our last conversation last year, what are some tips that you've got um, for having successful relationships with outside counsel and developing that trusted advisor relationship? There's a thousand lawyers who have the substantive skill set to handle any given issue. So I think that at least for me and most of the in-house lawyers, I know what the real difference maker is the personal relationship. You got to have that personal relationship. And what's been most successful and enjoyable for me is when my outside counsel are not only great lawyers, but really good people that I enjoy spending time with. And, and some of the best relationships have turned into social relationships. So when you look at the best lawyers you've worked with, whether they were litigators or transactional lawyers or regulatory lawyers, why don't you name like the top three qualities that they had? Maybe it goes with as a given, but they have to be really smart. But I guess for what you're asking, responsiveness is really important. Quality of work, responsiveness, you know, in terms of returning phone calls, turning around work, those who take the time to really understand my company and my business are the most successful. And being willing to, to work with me and get to know me and, you know, maybe my quirks and the way that I work, I can be fairly emotional sometimes, especially in the litigation context. And and my outside counsel, maybe they know I like to bark, but they know I also understand sometimes. I just rely on them to walk me back from the ledge sometimes. So those are the types of things that have led to the most successful partnerships. So there's one question I'd like to ask you about the understanding of your business. Um, I was in a, in a client meeting a few days ago where we were talking about different counsel that she's worked with over the years. And when she was talking about one in particular, whom we both know, she said to me, he is an excellent lawyer, but he had a tendency to try to make the business decisions for our client, our, you know, her internal client, and obviously my client, you know, where, where we were functioning as outside counsel. So do you have something you'd like to share or comment about how an outside counsel can effectively walk that line and do it effectively between giving advice that is tailored to the business, 
but also abstaining from trying to make the business decisions for their clients? Sure. And in some ways it's similar to the way that I would do it with my business clients. Uh, and it may be as simple as asking a question, taking the, uh, taking the instruction you may want to give me and turning it into a question and say, you know, well, David, I hear what you're saying. Have you ever thought about doing it this way? You know, get to the advice you want to give by asking questions that demonstrate you understand my business and give me alternatives. It's kind of like saying, don't, don't just say no, say no, but think about this. And that way you're letting me arrive at the answer on my own rather than you telling me what I have to do. I think that's great advice. What I have found myself doing, and this started when I was a junior associate, I had the privilege of working with some really terrific lawyers throughout my career and especially starting out. And what I really tried to do from the beginning was to give advice in the context of understanding the client's business. But when I started getting advice from the client or I started getting questions from the client asking me for my advice, or where the client asked me to provide an analysis. And when I find myself today going into territory, which I really think is more of the business decision territory, I will say, if it were me, I would do X, but ultimately this is your business decision. Yeah, that's the perfect way to do it. The other thing is when you've developed a good relationship with your outside counsel and you have a really strong sort of trusted advisor type relationship, which, which is ideal, then outside counsel can exercise some, you, you kind of have a privilege in that situation where, look, we have an established relationship. I know you know my business now. We've been working together for a long time. Just tell me. You know, that totally, that totally makes sense. So, David, when you look in your crystal ball, what do you see for yourself professionally in the next few months and next few years? Well, if things go my way, I will retire from National Material. And if things go my way, that's probably about at least another 13 years from now. And I just want to continue growing my skill set and becoming a better lawyer. I know, you know, substantively, in the next few months and a couple of years, I will continue to learn uh, union contract negotiation, for example. I'm, I'm, as we have a number of companies that are unionized and their contracts have been coming due this year. So I'm kind of watching and learning this year. When they come back up in three to five years, I'll be leading those negotiations. And I'm really looking forward to that. Another aspect of my professional career, I do a lot of mentoring, especially through the Association of Corporate Counsel, Chicago Chapters, Diversity Law Student Summer Internship Program. That's a longtime passion of mine, and I certainly hope to continue doing that for many years to come. If you could give our listeners any advice, what would it be? <laughs> you know, that's a loaded question, being the compulsive mentor. <laughs> I could give lots of advice. You know, in this conversation, it, it brings me back to what I said at the end of the last conversation, which is follow what you're passionate about in your career. Don't follow the money and, and understand that what you're passionate about will change. If you simply follow the dollars, 
you're going to be hard pressed to be happy 30 years into your career. But if you follow what you're passionate about and then realize, Hey, this is interesting. Let me follow it down. Let me follow that down that rabbit hole and see if I like it. And if I, if you do go chase it. I think that that's really good advice. And I think what I would add to that and is something that's been a theme throughout what you've been talking about over the past two sessions is to always be intellectually curious because I think being intellectually curious will put you in the position you want to be in to the extent that you're thinking that an opportunity to do something different is something you want to pursue. And even if you're very happy in your current position, in order to keep growing and maturing as a professional, it's really important for you to maintain that intellectual curiosity and to ask why. Absolutely. I, I agree with that 100%. Another thing that I talk about when I talk about my job is, as I said, we're manufacturing, we're steel and aluminum, big, kind of big old fashioned factories. And I always say, when I walk into a factory, my initial reaction, no matter how many times I, I go into that factory, I'm that little five-year-old boy who says, cool, big machines. And then I'm the lawyer who says, all right, now explain this to me. Why is this happening? Why are we doing it this way? You know, the last couple of years, for example, I've been, been much more involved on our safety committee. So I'm really focused on safety when I'm in our factories and understanding, well, how does this work? Now, that's not necessarily purely legal. Of course, safety is because of OSHA, but it's also business and how do you, and it's morality. Uh, so, so I'm very keen on that and I get to learn all of that. And, and a lot of that is driven by the intellectual curiosity. And I think my intellectual curiosity has been fostered over the last 20 years by the fact I've figured out how to chase what I love. And that's in essence being an in-house lawyer. That's great. And unfortunately we are out of time. Um, David, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners and where can they find you? Um, you know, a final thought, cause we, we ran out of time and didn't get into this, didn't have a chance to get into this. In addition to your work, I would say get involved in outside activities, get involved in bar associations, get involved in not-for-profits. It's a great way to give back. It's a great way to expand your network. And most importantly, it's a great way to learn leadership skills. Where can people find me? Uh, LinkedIn, David Sussler, and Twitter, at David Sussler. And sitting at your desk. And sitting at my desk. <laughs> David, thank you so much for joining us for our ongoing series, um, Tales from the General Counsel's Office. Looking forward to doing this again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you have enjoyed our great conversation with David Sussler as we continue with our recurring series from inside the General Counsel's office. We hope that you will join us next week. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.